thank you for joining us on the Therapy Cable podcast. What you're about to listen to are conversations and interviews on some of the most crucial and important topics in the behavioral and mental health space. It is our mission to help remove the stigmas attached to mental health, psychology, and addiction, one recording at a time. Welcome to Cable. I'm Dr. Esan Garjadagi. Today, what we're going to do is talk about addiction and families. So, a lot of times, people are talking about uh, addiction is a family disease, and uh, rightfully so. Many people find it a little bit offensive um, and uh, or inaccurate, or, or people have find fault with this uh, uh, proposal that addiction is a family problem. Because a lot of times, um, you know, some uh, uh, individuals may simply just blame the addict or their own decisions and distance themselves from those bad decisions and irrational uh, ways of, uh, you know, kind of using substances and uh, hurting themselves. And uh, certainly regard the individual's action different uh, from the family's uh, influence, and uh, a lot of times they have they're right, and uh, certainly there is some truth to it uh, that you know, uh, family members may not necessarily be as involved, at least as it is looked upon on the surface, uh, in the decision making of an addict, right? Um, if, especially if the family members are kind of distant from one another, right? If I put myself in the position of a distant family member, let's say if my um, brother, sister, uh, cousin, you know, parents, one of my parents or, again, children, any one of uh, close or extended family members was using drugs and I haven't seen them for 10 years, I haven't talked to them for many, many years, and someone would say, hey, you know, this uh, family member's addiction is, uh, uh, is uh, or this addict's problems and addiction is a family disease. And so you guys as a family have uh, must have a disease, more or less, and uh, you have addiction running in your family. But I would feel it. I mean, uh, if I put myself in the shoes of that particular scenario, you know, a family member in that particular scenario, I would be offended and I would say, well, what does it have to do with me? You know, I have really um, no say or influence and uh, uh, also uh, in terms of responsibility and having a role in uh, the affairs of um, my family member. We are distant. We are, uh, I'm not influencing them one way or another. Uh, we are two adults. They have their lives. I have my life. So how is that a family disease? So I would would be, at the minimum, I would be surprised to hear that, if not also literally shocked, and perhaps even worse uh, or more intense reaction would be uh, absolutely uh, appalled by this uh, proposition. Um, because then uh, the extension of the actions of a family member, I would be kind of guilty as charged 
and uh, kind of thrown into the same bucket and category as uh, a person who perhaps is uh, doing a lot of damage in their lives and in lives of other people. So uh, be treated by extension and uh, by association. And, and uh, certainly that can come across as appalling and offensive and insulting. And, uh, and at, at, at times also quite inaccurate and unfair. So I can completely understand that. On the other hand, the uh, proponents, if you will, of the philosophy of addiction being a family disease argue that, you know, we, are not, we may not be talking about an immediate influence or immediate culpability or immediate um, and, and close proximity or immediate influence of, of a family member and, uh, and more or less uh, complicity, if you will, in uh, making these irrational and harmful decisions. We're not talking about this, what we are talking about are more or less the root causes, the ideology, in other words, and the history that uh, lies beneath the entire uh, present situation, because the present situation was not fabricated or born, uh, generated um, overnight. So what we are talking about as a family disease is not to necessarily blame a particular family member. That's not the goal and purpose, but the goal and purpose really is to understand the complex nature of why addiction even exists and is maintained the way it is maintained. So it's what we call a systemic approach toward defining, describing, and uh, assessing a person's addictive behaviors and also trying to find solutions. So, in other words, um, uh, people who are of that uh, belief system that a complex uh, problem like addiction needs a systemic approach in its assessment as well as treatment plan, uh, they do allow themselves and also invite other people, whether they are professionals uh, or other stakeholders in the community, um, as well as uh, stakeholders in the betterment and improvement in the life of an addict, which includes the family members, to literally come to uh, the rescue of, of not only the person, the family member, but also really this, the entire epidemic that is um, affecting the entire society. So it's a call when we say addiction is a family disease, is not meant to put blame and immediately find fault with family members. That's not the intention. And if it is coming across, uh, you know, the proponents, and, and I happen to be one of those proponents, uh, you know, what we mean by that is to uh, invite individuals, family members, to become part of the solution by understanding the ideology, the history, the uh, uh, background to uh, the, the, the maintaining factors to addictive lifestyles that is literally um, happening uh, is at the same time both happening to a person as well as maintained by the person. And the solution that uh, we, we propose that people need to look at lies 
behind that curtain, if you will, that is obscured and is kept in place by an unwillingness to look at the problem systemically. So the idea here, uh, rather than putting blame, is to uh, in, to uh, really call for a collaborative approach to, toward the solution. So uh, at least that is my understanding of the systemic approach and uh, of the slogan, if you will, addiction is a family disease. Now, uh, I'm certain that there are many other clinicians that probably disagree with me and they have their own uh, view, uh, but I'm not speaking for them, I'm speaking for myself. So as far as uh, my understanding of this uh, is concerned or moniker or whatever you want to call it, the title, you know, of the epidemic of addiction, that it is a family disease. I want to literally commit and dedicate uh, some of my time, at least, to raising awareness for families to, to understand how they can become part of the solution. I have clients who come to me, whether they are themselves addicted to substances or what we call processes, such as uh, you know gambling or sex addiction or other types of addictions, and um, also family members of addicts who come to me and consult with yes, clients. So generally, uh, this is my approach, that I invite um, everyone to uh, take that systemic look, that, that perspective, for them to understand and be able to empower themselves to tackle this problem. And as soon as they do, at least I see, and, and my clients definitely put, uh, are witness to it, and uh, I'm sure they would uh, you know, support this assertion that they're making, that uh, their, change, their life uh, starts to change. So um, you see the difference. You see that they are empowered, they feel empowered, they feel uh, more confident, they feel more capable. The evidence is right there, staring in their face and in my face, everybody's face. And uh, the healing accelerates. So uh, their uh, relationships improve, their coping skills improve, their uh, response to addictive styles changes and it uh, becomes a lot more uh, effective. And uh, also, uh, what happens is that the risk for relapse uh, diminishes, their uh, risk for self-harm and harm to others diminishes, and, and it basically becomes a gradual healing process where uh, over a certain period of time, it's at times, um, um, you know, oftentimes, actually many times, setbacks that are uh, accepted as part of the journey, ultimately the, the healing wins and um, takes over and uh, helps a person uh, to literally get their life back together and under control. And um, uh, certainly at times they still have um, craving or uh, you know, kind of romance with some ideas that they used to use substances, things like that. But it is just that, it's a fleeting idea. It doesn't have enough energy, substance or essence or to percolate and to uh, rise to the surface and uh, literally sabotage a, a person's uh, current life anymore. So now it's not an easy road and journey, 
but a lot of times what they notice is the more family members or the more deeply any family member is involved in that uh, trajectory, uh, the, uh, the faster the person improves and the happier and more content all the family members actually become. <coughs> so those are important um, uh, observations about families uh, influence on addiction that I wanted to bring up. And so what I would like to do now is actually give particular examples. Now, I would love for any of you that are watching to give me a comment or um, a question that I can literally answer that is more fitting for your situation and helpful to you or your loved ones. So please do feel free to post the question um, wherever you are, wherever you're looking at this channel and this video whether it is Facebook, Instagram, Periscope, Therapy, or YouTube, or whatever it may be, just please uh, go ahead and post whatever you like. I'm here to help and answer questions, comments. I would appreciate that very much. So uh, while I'm waiting for some of you to engage with me and, uh, uh, and uh, really uh, get involved in this type of a uh, live discussion, I'm going to come up with some examples myself, you know, that I have literally seen happening in my office, in my private practice, in my daily uh, interaction. Just FYI, I want to share with you that I am the chief clinical officer at beginning treatment centers, which includes a array of uh, what we call all levels of care in when it comes to substance abuse, addiction, treatment from detox to residential care to outpatient care. And uh, so I deal with this problem on a daily basis. And uh, so I wanted you to know what's my background. If I'm speaking about addiction and families, you know, how do I literally put that together with my history and expertise and, and where I come from beyond just being a clinical psychologist. So it's a daily interaction that I have with addicts. Uh, we have about 50 clients. We certainly interact with the families. In fact, we are coming up with a family program. So it, the families matter to me, and uh, I've literally seen of what kind of what, what big uh, difference it makes. You know what uh, amazing, amazingly powerful difference there is when families get involved. And uh, so that's I'm very passionate, as you can tell. So I'm getting a. Um, uh, question very quickly before we get into the family side of things. But here, Jacqueline, thank you very much for asking Jacqueline. Uh, Jacqueline is asking, are you against Suboxone? Suboxone um, is another addictive uh, you know, remedy. So I'm not against, <laughs> well, I am against it and I'm not against it. So let me clarify what I mean by that. I think it's a good short-term remedy. You know, uh, more or less, if a client went into uh, a detox, you know, we don't uh, want, especially people who are coming off of what we call anxiolytics, uh, benzodiazepines, barbiturates, alcohol, um, uh, and stimulants, and uh, so forth, that, uh, uh, that is, uh, 
when, when they go through detox and withdrawal symptoms, they are at a high risk of literally physical uh, shock and ailment, and seizures, and um, more uh, systemic shutdown to their body and physiology. So, therefore, uh, usually when people go to detox, they are put on some kind of what we call uh, medicinal tapers, you know, there's some medication to help them uh, uh, kind of flush the, the main substance, which could be, like I said, barbiturates or benzos or alcohol or stimulants out of their system, uh, while managing the risk of the shock to their system, to their physiology. So, so that basically doesn't end up in death, right? So, so and that's that short-term treatment. It is an acceptable medicinal and medical uh, approach. And certainly one could argue that with opiate, that's a, that can be narcotic that you're talking about that is linked to Suboxone, um, you know, that could be a possible strategy to consider for someone uh, as a means of what we call a harm reduction. So rather than throwing a person on uh, kind of cold turkey into a detox center and uh, just kind of um, risking the fact of, you know, uh, a person's literally drastically detoxing themselves from opiates, what we could be talking about is more of a gradual weaning off from opiates. If someone is addicted to heroin or, uh, you know, um, to, uh, to, let's say, OxyContin or uh, morphine or any type of opiate-related type of prescription, there's just also non-prescribed uh, street drugs that fall into that category. Um, if the plan is to gradually wean the person off of these drugs uh, for a short period of time that can be agreed upon, you know, for the sake of uh, literally that type of both, I would say, uh, biopsychosocial management of that transition, of their withdrawal, going from a daily use of opiates to no use, I am in favor of it. But then that is that caveat that I want to that kind of qualifies the difference that I'm making where I'm both against it as well as for it. So uh, if we are talking about the completely long-term uh, use of Suboxone for years, you know, and certainly against it because literally what we are talking about is really just replacing more harmful opiates with less harmful uh, version of opiates. So Suboxone, I'm not going to get into the depth of explaining what it is, but for just for the time being right now, it's literally a uh, less addictive uh, version of, of opiates. So um, it's not completely non-addictive, and that's why people can't get off of them once they are on, on Suboxone. Uh, they can, but it is has its own hardship. It has its own withdrawal phase. And, uh, so... Uh, that's important. Uh, that's important. I, I think uh, I, I, I hope I've answered you, Jacqueline, whether I'm against or for it. And uh, uh, so you're asking, my daughter is on it, two years clean, I control it. Okay. So that's a qualifier that I'm getting. So uh, here, uh, I'm sensing already that uh, in your question, there is a wish 
that you would want your daughter to uh, uh, get off of it, and perhaps even for your own daughter, you know, in your daughter, you know, she herself perhaps internally wishes that she would not be dependent on yet another type of remedy. So uh, otherwise you wouldn't, that's at least my inclination, I would, otherwise you wouldn't be even wondering about, about this. So, um, um, <clears throat> so, however, interestingly here is uh, what I would link this question to is the role of family members. So what uh, Jacqueline is saying is that she is controlling the suboxone use of her daughter and literally also control the cleanliness or cleanness or the time of uh, being clean um, from, from drug or from opiates for her daughter. So, uh, however, that also creates a certain dependency. So I can see that as beneficial as far as the harm reduction is concerned. Certainly, it must be better than a uncontrollable, uh, out-of-bounds type of a, uh, addictive uh, use of opioids of daughter herself, uh, where her life is out of control, versus if you are managing and she is managing a more or less uh, you know, lifestyle that is in control, perhaps she's quite functional, and the family is actually, it seems like here the family is quite involved, that this mother involved is involved. And so it's less harmful, for sure. However, uh, again, the two years uh, time frame uh, raises a question in terms of, well, you know, what's your plan? Do you want to be there uh, for another 20 years, uh, uh, 40 years, and 80 years? You know, what's the game plan? What's the exit strategy? So, uh, certainly, I'm sure that nobody wants to be a lifelong dependent uh, on, on certain substances and drugs, and really even if they're prescribed, right? So, what's the idea here? The idea here is that you ultimately, you and your daughter, would want to uh, literally kind of wean off of it and become non-dependent on uh, a certain medication uh, and live your life free of this dependence, then the treatment plan needs to change. The idea, the mindset, goals, objectives, need to be aligned with that uh, ultimate goal of independence. So that's where we go with that. So now, now we have VM Shay says, uh, I am clean. Okay, thank you very much uh, for sharing that, that you're clean. Tell us more if you like. I would like to hear from what are you clean from and how long it take and uh, how far uh, are you going to go. Uh, we'd love to hear that. Jack Jacqueline says, thank you, Dr. G. Thank you, Jacqueline. I appreciate your uh, interaction with us. So going back to some examples I wanted to share with you guys is that, uh, um, you know, something like this that Jacqueline brought up and then even extended to perhaps maybe the opposite of it. You know, what if a family said, family member said, you know, I don't want to be involved in managing my life, my, my, my child's life. Uh, I think uh, it's not my, my role, it's not my responsibility, uh, even if they're teenagers, right? They're not just even adults. So at times, that's what we get, that the person like, is wondering, like, why do you guys want to drag me into this whole fiasco and disaster 
and I've been uh, involved enough and hurt enough, you know, and and appreciate that certainly. And uh, and again, now the question here literally becomes uh, again those goals and objectives that the family uh, member has. You know, um, the, the the notion that we, we can. Um, write off a family member, the notion that we can you know, wash our hands off of a family member based on the idea of individualism is a, uh, is a theoretical and uh, philosophical um, principle that many people adhere to, understand that uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a good theory, if you will. It's a, a, appealing, it has its own appeal. It's uh, kind of sexy, you know, to say, yeah, you know, independence and uh, individualism, you know, I want to just be myself, live for myself, live by myself, and, you know, have my own family, and, and all I need to do is just kind of stay away from um, uh, other people, including my family members who cause problems. Uh, that generally works for a while, but uh, it doesn't for, work forever. You know, that's uh, been shown more or less in terms of human psyche that uh, human beings are quite amazing and very complex uh, organisms and, you know, numerous creatures. You know, we are uh, one of the smartest, if not the smartest, you know, organism in this world who evolve over time. You know, we don't stay static. Our wishes, desires, preferences change over time. And uh, one of the hallmarks that I always use to explain human nature are what we call developmental stages of growth, you know, that define literally uh, different milestones and phases of existence and growth and change within the lifespan of a human being. Uh, if anyone would want to know much more about the uh, phenomenon of human existence, and as well as be able to understand the depth of this phenomenology as well as being able to at times even predict, you know, a certain success or failure, uh, even if it is just for one's own life and future, I believe they would be well served they look into uh, the developmental stages of growth and the literature that exists on that because that sheds uh, quite some light on the uh, very deep layers uh, of human uh, existence and phenomenology and nature, especially as it relates to uh, those uh, meaningful experiences that we have talked about, such as how we feel, how we make decisions, how we perceive the world around us, how we act to the world around us, and um, really helps us understand ourselves as individuals, as, as uh, organisms that are both an individual and a social human being at the same time. And people who are uh, subscribing to that idea of individualism, rugged individualism, and so to say, and um, yeah, just said, you know, I just want to be myself and um, you know, by myself and just live my, my own life and that's it. I don't necessarily need to, you know, cater to family, you know, the notion of belonging to a family, etc. Uh, they do that for a while, and it works for them for a while, but the, uh, literally the notion of 
belongingness to a family, whether it's the belongingness to a family of origin or a notion of belongingness to an extended family, what we call a more or less a chosen family um, that uh, is not uh, the same genetic and bloodline family that they have grown up with, but just simply friends and new acquaintances and best friends that they have invited into their uh, new life and now regard as the new extended long family. Uh, or the, uh, what I would say, the, 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 the next generation, the, the new family that they put together with a partner, uh, we cannot escape that desire. We cannot escape ultimately the desire and the need, literally an existential need for every human being to experience that sense of belongingness is inescapable and inevitable. And that is part of, of a very much natural uh, you know, component of the developmental uh, stages of growth. You know, especially what we know that after the age of 30, 35, or some people a little bit even much sooner, some people uh, later, maybe even into their 40s even after, because the so-called midlife crisis, that need uh, intensifies. You know, people, it's literally a proven fact that one of the biggest fears of human beings is loneliness. And sooner or later, every one of us, we have to face that sense of loneliness. And uh, we, we dread that loneliness. So, and what, what naturally uh, our antidote to loneliness does and is available us naturally, you know, psychologically, um, emotionally, is that sense of belonging. When we literally establish a relationship with one of few people, then evolves into a close-knit, uh, family-like type of relationship. So, when we're talking about family, that's why I want to I want to expand on that. If someone said, you know, that's not my problem that my family member is using or not. I kind of uh, want to expand that discussion into this greater concept of um, really, you know, is that is that really true in, in terms of, well, you may have uh, created that type of a notion with one particular family member that you grew up with, but the sensation, the sense, the feeling of wanting to care about somebody that you care about and um, uh, and being there for them, that's not foreign to you. Now, um, and at times, people get lost with that um, type of a mentality, where they lose that uh, sight. First, they lose the sight of the importance and meaningfulness of caring for others that are meaningful to them and matter to them, uh, just because they have learned to write off uh, even close family members. So uh, it's the same concept, you know, uh, that's the difficulty that I want to bring up and discuss here that if some family members have written off their addict, addicted family members uh, and thinking that that's all I needed to do and I'm good now, I have a clean slate and I can reestablish great, wonderful new connections with other people, they kind of fool themselves because what happens is that, uh, you know, it's the same skill 
that is going to be deficient and come uh, short uh, also in new relationships. When uh, we establish, and, and it literally goes back to what we call a sense of attachment and, uh, uh, and uh, interpersonal uh, interdependency. You know, uh, that, that's, that's very important to, to know about oneself. And now I don't want to get lost too much into the, you know, theoretical matter. So going back to an example that some people say, well, what should I be too involved in a family member's uh, lifestyle and decision making? Uh, if destructive and I don't want to be part of that. And uh, I would say, sure, uh, but it depends whether or not you have, have been involved all at any point of time, um, you know, and what that involvement looks like. So if there is, uh, for instance, if there is this desire on the side of the addict or the addicted family member to reestablish connection with you, and you, uh, you're, you're not aware of it, you're, you may be oblivious to it, you may, um, you know, uh, not know it, you, you may be ignorant about it, it or may know it to kind of brush up and be afraid of uh, re-establishing that connection for the pain, for the pain that you would have to endure, and uh, so that's those are the questions that I would have that I would bring up in terms of uh, is there clarity more or less in the communication in the personal interaction with these family members? You know, we know that generally. Family members that have grown up with each other, they have a natural tendency of kind of reconnecting with one another or staying in touch with each other. We call that cohesion, family cohesion. People even growing up with traumatic experiences in family environments where family members have been abusive, they still um, tend to gravitate back to at least a desire of wanting to repair those relationships and again, feel that sense of belonging to the family of origin or even the family or the new family that they have created. So rather than fighting against this natural desire for resilience and cohesion, uh, I would say it's much better and uh, quite gratifying when people learn how to deal with it, how to uh, manage it, how to electrify uh, it and use it to empower themselves, to mend those relationships. Um, that's what I would say. So again, a call to action and engagement. I would like to ask our viewers to ask any questions that they may have uh, about themselves, about others, and the family members. We're talking about addiction and family. Addiction is known as a family disease. We are examining those aspects. Why is it even called a family disease? Uh, uh, multiple different aspects of or perspectives that family members may have toward this concept. Um, what I'm uh, waiting for some of your guys' comments to, uh, to uh, get to us and for me to answer, I would like to uh, really open up the discussion about why we even call it a family disease. You know, uh, I've alluded to that um, general reason, which is goes back to the history and ideology of 
the maintaining factors of the addiction, uh, having the roots in the person's again, early developmental stages, and those early developmental stages they have uh, to do, they have taken place during the childhood of the person that are formative stages of growth that determine more or less the uh, majority or the, uh, the, 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 the um, almost the entirety of the personality of a, of a child, of, of a young person that is growing to become an adult. Uh, it is known in the psychodynamic field that personality is formed uh, by age seven or eight. Uh, called the psychoanalytic and Jungian um, perspective that uh, has existed um, very much for a century. But um, there are good indications why that is so uh, from multiple different theories. I'm not going to get into that, but uh, I truly believe in that, that a person's core personality is generally uh, developed by age eight. So, uh, and we know that most children literally are um, quite heavily dependent from birth to <coughs> about that age or even even further, perhaps maybe even up to 15 or 16, 16 years of age on the norms and the rules and the mores on the um, you know, culture of their family that they, uh, their parents mostly and their siblings that they uh, are surrounded by. So, um, now, again, without really pointing blame or uh, fault at family members, what we want to understand is that uh, if in very functional and happy families, there are some opportunities for the development of an addict uh, lifestyle. And we want to be able to examine this and understand how come that many uh, wealthy families, uh, health, even like I mentioned, functional, advanced uh, families in all over the world who otherwise would uh, describe themselves as trouble-free or problem-free uh, end up more or less with one or two family members, uh, close family members in their uh, immediate family. Uh, struggling with addiction, especially substance use, um, uh, and even you know gambling, etc. etc. So, how come? How come that uh, that can exist or coexist? How come that uh, the environment of a healthy functioning family uh, generally um, healthy, uh, healthy and functioning family, at least on the surface, let's say, or even deep down? literally with uh, responsible parents, active siblings, caring individuals within the family uh, that even despite all those parameters and factors, one or two or more uh, family members can develop addictive lifestyle substances. So these are um, important questions to ask. And uh, here, what we want to do is uh, open that One of the things that can uh, can bring up, hopefully that will serve as a, a good topic for, for an analysis 
analysis or uh, a discourse with you uh, wonderful viewers is that um, you know addiction if you want to really understand the, uh, the reasons why addiction even develops you know what we have to do is look beyond the uh, toxic nature of it and the derogatory uh, aspect of it because that is an impediment to understanding you know if we categorize someone who uses drugs immediately as subpar and subhuman or you know deficient uh, you know character then uh, we have done a disservice because that is a major I would say um, really mis misperception about addiction. You know, uh, the fact that uh, a person may just kind of think in this dichotomous way of thinking that good people, you know, intelligent people, healthy people are not prone to addiction, but bad people, uh, not so smart people, and uh, quite unhealthy, characterologically unhealthy people, they are the only ones who get addicted. That creates this boundary uh, and, and, and um, obstacle, and literally this uh, um, uh, impediment to understanding and accepting the fact that even in, like I said, very responsible families, addicted uh, children can flourish and uh, and literally, uh, you know, have the freedom to do whatever they want and. Um, because again, in that autonomous view um, pushes us toward this all or none thinking. It pushes us toward um, thinking that you know a problem exists only for those who are deficient, rather than in my family. So basically, in other words, it's not in my family type of approach. Um, it keeps a, blind, a person blind. Uh, and blindfolded toward the realities of why things are happening. And at times, and I've had that with a lot of my clients, um, the parent is, just remains paralyzed in shock in terms of how they can help their child because they're so distant and uh, removed from the realities of what is actually happening in this world. Because they have more or less wished to have lived within a pure environment and family environment that they have told themselves for many, many years, you know, not in my family. This thing, this detriment cannot even exist. I cannot even fathom the idea that uh, addiction would find its way into my uh, close circles. And therefore, uh, there is this resistance to accepting the reality around us that uh, no, you know, my child too, despite everything that I have provided, despite all the comfort or despite all the advancement, despite all the uh, opportunities and uh, protection that I have provided, my child too has become uh, addicted, has become involved in addiction, has developed a certain addictive lifestyle, has uh, had um, a desire to use substance has had a desire to use uh, you know, kind of go against the grain, if you will, 
you know, despite all my best effort. So I think that's very, very important as the first step to realize that our idea of addiction and addict addicts and addictive opportunities has has to change. So we are getting really to the end of the session. Uh, I call it a session or the kind of a discussion. Um, and uh, it's about 5.52. We usually run for an hour, uh, about 50 minutes of discussion. Again, I invite you to uh, post any questions that you may have or comments, uh, especially as it relates to this first um, step. And uh, as soon as we are capable of uh, uh, really taking this, I believe, we also are capable of um, taking the next step after that, which is um, starting to understand the realities, the, the actual practical, um, you know, uh, basically factors that exist that have led our loved ones to uh, become an addict. That is, uh, that willingness to open our eyes to the bitter realities that may exist in our families um, is very, very important. And maybe as a last uh, thought and also a uh, word of comfort, I would say I want to share with you that no family is immune. No, no human being is immune to those dynamics that can lead to um, literally a tendency for wanting to use substances because it's just human nature that uh, desires comfort and substances literally they offer some, some comfort now how and when and uh, the, the details of the steps that have existed to lead a person to seek that comfort despite all other types of comforts that uh, have existed and been present that becomes the inquiry that becomes a subject of inquiry for a family to start thinking in that direction that oh okay uh, interestingly uh, my family member has chosen substances certain substances whether it's a alcoholic drink or a prescribed medication or non-prescribed you know, street drugs to seek comfort for some kind of pain that they have had within their life and uh, want to find out why and want to find out how and how come they didn't choose something else instead, something that wouldn't be as detrimental. So I leave you with that thought. I hope that you have enjoyed our video and our conversation and discussion. Please take care of yourselves. And if you have any thoughts, questions about, again, family members, family members' roles in addition, and if I have any questions about your, perhaps something that's going on in your family, don't feel ashamed or uh, just guilty or um, you know, uh, disappointed or betrayed, uh, you know, and, and give up. I would, what I would suggest is all those feelings are natural and normal. It's okay to feel those things. People get disappointed or feel betrayed all the time. And there's unfairness and injustice everywhere. There is feelings of, uh, you know, hurt, um, uh, being depressed, sad, uh, or worried about these types of issues all the time. Shame and guilt are natural feelings. It's okay to feel those, but don't give up. Find out what the solutions are. That's the main 
think that as a family member care, that the solution is there and I know you care. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Therapy Cable Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast provider. To view the entire videos of these episodes, visit us online at therapycable.com and send us an email about your thoughts and topic suggestions.